Desperado Why don't you come to your senses You've been out riding fences For so long now Oh, you're a hard one That song goes on to say, Now it seems to me that some fine things have been laid upon your table, but you only want the things you can't get. Your pain and your hunger, they're driving you home. And freedom, oh freedom, well that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. Now the song comes to a close by saying, You'd better, you'd better let somebody love you before it's too late. Now, if you're familiar with that song, it was a hit song in the 70s by a non-Christian group called the Eagles. Um, but the story sounds like it could have come from Luke chapter 15. Because in Luke chapter 15, what we find is there is a man who has been given many fine things. But he leaves that going out into the world looking for fulfillment and the freedom that he thinks the world offers him only to find out that it's, it's empty and it's wasted and he's driven home by the pain and hunger to the one who truly loves him. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 15 because here we find that there are actually three parables that speak of God's great love for us. And as the chapter begins, we're told in verses 1 through 2, it says, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The religious leaders of the day, you'll remember, thought that God didn't want anything to do with sinners. They thought that God was one who drove sinners away from him and really just wanted to destroy them. And what we find here is that God's Son, Jesus Christ, comes along and he associates with the sinners. Now, this creates a problem. Not only is he dealing with the garden variety sinners, but you see he's even eating with the tax gatherers. The tax gatherers were seen as the worst of the worst. These were, were seen as traitors. They were thieves. They were working with the nation of Rome that had occupied Israel. And so these guys were seen as, as the, the total outcast. And Jesus is eating with them. Eating, you'll recall, was a sign of great intimate fellowship. Now, the reason they're grumbling is this blows up their whole system. Because if they, their theology said God wants to destroy sinners, and yet here you have God's Son eating and fellowshipping with these who are far from Him, they have one of two choices. They can either dismiss uh, Jesus as a shyster and say, well, He's really not God's Son. And you'll recall they tried to do that. But then they had the problem of explaining away Jesus' teaching and the miracles He was doing. And the other option they had was to accept that he was indeed who he said, God's son, which meant they had to change their theology. Now, as we look at what Jesus is teaching here, he wants us to know that God loves those who are far from him. He hammers that point home here in Luke chapter 15 with three different parables. The first is one where there is the, the parable of a man who had a hundred sheep and 99 are with him and one wanders away. 
And he leaves, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go in search of the one. Then he comes and he tells the parable of a woman who had 10 coins. And she loses one of the 10 and she searches fervently in the home until she can find the one that was lost. And these things that are lost represent lost people, as we see from verse 10 in Luke 15, because there Jesus says, in the same way, I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, the parable here in Luke 15 tells us that every individual is important to God. Every single one of you who are here is important to God. This matters no matter what our background is, no matter how big of a mess we've made of our life, God loves you. And he loves you like you are, but friends, he also loves us too much to leave us like we are, which is why he calls us to come home to him. We're told in verse 11, as Jesus begins this third parable, there was a certain man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And the father divided his wealth between them. Now, the father in the parable obviously represents God. The younger son, the one who is the prodigal here, represents those who are far from God, these sinners that the Pharisees are upset they're dealing with. Now, the second son represents the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He's the obedient one, the one that appears close to the father and stays home and is doing the things that he should. And as Jesus sets up the story here, I want you to put yourself in the father's place for a minute. Ask yourself how you would feel if one of your children came to you and they said, Mom, Dad, you know, you're just not dying fast enough. <laughs> so we want you to go ahead and give us our inheritance now. I want you to sell your stuff and give me my share of the estate. Now you're thinking, well, your share of the estate equals zero, right? I'm going to call the attorneys. I'm going to write you out of the will. Uh, or maybe I'm going to spend everything I have so that there will be nothing left for you as an ungrateful child. But we see rather than reacting that way, what we're told is that the father, God here, gives his son his inheritance. <clears throat> now, the oldest son, as you remember from Jewish uh, law and tradition, would receive a double portion. So as the, if there are two children here, the estate is divided essentially in three, and the younger son gets a third, and two-thirds of the estate remain. Now, as we see God giving this younger son what he asked for, it isn't teaching us that as parents we should be permissive, that we should just give our kids anything they want. What this is teaching us here is about our free will, how God does allow us to make choices, choices sometimes that are very bad, but because God has given us free will, he allows us to make these decisions. As you think about our free will, and our ability to walk away from God. I'm reminded of what happened in our country on September 11th when the terrorist attacks happened. And after those 9-11 terrorist attacks, Anne Graham Lotz, the, the daughter of Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, was being interviewed by Jane Clayson on TV. And Jane Clayson asked Anne Graham Lotz, if God is good, how could God let this happen? To that, what would you say? And Lotz responded, I say that God is also angry when he sees something like this. I would say also that for several years now, Americans, in a sense, have shaken their fist at God and said, God, we want you out of our schools. We want you out of our government, out of our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of our national and political life, our public life, 
removing his hand of blessing and protection. We need to turn to God first of all and say, God, we are sorry for how we've treated you. And we invite you now to come into our national life. We put our trust in you. We have our trust and uh, we say on our coins, in God we trust and we need to practice it. You know, so often we tell God, we want our freedom from you. We want to make our own choices. We want to live our life the way we want. We don't need you. And then we wonder with those decisions, when the consequences come, where is God? As we look at our son in this story, he's about to find out that there are consequences that come with his choices. Because verses 13 through 16 tell us, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went out on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need. And he went and he attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into a field to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. You see, the, the younger son here said, I'm going to live it up. And he did. He partied hard for a while. He had a great time. So he thought he was having the time of his life. He's free from the father's restrictive rules. He's living according to his own motto. If it feels good, do it. And as he's doing this, the Bible tells us there is pleasure in sin for a season, but when the, when the high has passed, the hurt remains. There are consequences that come for our choices. And this sun hits rock bottom. You know, friends, if you're here today and, and, and you're longing for the green grass on the other side of the fence, let me remind you of two things. One, the grass is usually greenest over a septic tank, <laughs> and you don't want to eat that. Or, if it's one of those beautiful lawns you see around town, there's usually a high water bill that comes with it, right? And so many of us want that, and we forget that there is a price to pay for those things. You know, the drunken bash is fun until the car crash comes. Or you have the hangover if you survive to the next morning. There is a, a, a high that comes from a hit on drugs until that habit grabs you. Sex sure seems fun and good until there's an unplanned pregnancy or a disease or the broken heart and, and destruction that comes from that type of decision. How many of us here have chased what the world offers only to find ourselves wallowing in the mud like this young man did? He went from the penthouse to the pig pen. Here's a guy who said, I am the captain of my own destiny, and suddenly his ship is on the rocks. It's breaking up. It's taking on water. And he's sinking in the decisions he's made. You know, the Levitical law said the Jews were prohibited from eating uh, pork, things associated with swine. They were seen as unclean animals. They were not even to touch them. And so as this good Jewish boy becomes a pig herder, it means he's separated from his family. He's separated from his friends. He's all alone. He's working for a Gentile in the most humiliating job that a Jew could have, tending pigs. And as he's there, uh, humiliated and all alone, we're told he's hungry. He's so hungry, it says, that as he's looking at the slop he's feeding the pigs. I don't know if you've ever seen the way they slop pigs. It's not a very appetizing mixture, I'll tell you. 
It's, it's a mixture of half-eaten food and mush, and it's floating in soured milk and other things. You're going, ooh. Well, imagine this kid. He's, he's throwing this into a bucket, and as he's looking at it, it's not even that there's a half-eaten apple floating there, and he goes, oh, that looks so good. I'm going to pick that out and finish it off. What the text tells us is he's longing for the pods off a tree. In Israel, there's a carob pod on a tree. It's a type of tree. And it's a stringy bean-like uh, leaf that has, you know, these little uh, seeds in it. And they would feed these to livestock, or the extremely poor would eat them in times of famine where there was nothing else to eat. And this kid is looking at the leaves off a tree like it's a sizzling plate of fajitas. And it says he's longing to eat those things because he is so hungry. In those times where we find ourselves far from God, I want you to remember as we're looking at this story, it didn't happen like that overnight, did it? It says a couple days later he gathers his stuff, he goes out for a period of time, but with each step he goes farther from his father, he gets farther from the blessing and the protection that God offers to him. And some of you today are walking the wrong road and you're getting farther and farther from God. And right now you're saying, things are great. I'm having the time of my life. But friends, there's a point where that road you are running on will be a dead-end street and you will realize where it leads. Here is this prodigal son. He's hit bottom. And the next thing he does in verses 17 through 20 is what all of us here need to do if we find ourselves walking or running away from God. It says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and I will go and I will say to my father, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. As, as his son hits bottom, what we're told he does is repents. The word repent means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It literally means to stop, to turn around and go in the other direction. The picture of repentance is that if you picture yourself at the cross of Christ where you are in relationship with God, when we sin, we turn our back on God and we begin to walk away from him. And as we get farther away from God, we realize we're on the wrong road and we stop in our mind and say, this is, this is wrong, this is dumb, I need to turn around. And we turn around and we walk back to God and we begin to live in fellowship with him again. That is the sign of repentance. And if you're here today and you've been walking away from God, he wants you to stop, to turn around and come to him. If you've never come to him in the first place, if you've never become a believer in Jesus Christ, he says today you need to realize the road you are on is a dead-end road leading to destruction and to stop and turn around and come to the one who is the Lord of life. It says in verse 20, And this son got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Now, notice that while the son is still a long way off, the father's not sitting comfortably in the house, watching the big screen TV, not worried about his son. It says his father is heartbroken. He's wondering, where is my son? He's longing for this, this relationship to be restored, and he's, he's looking and watching. And some of you here today are just like this father. You are a parent who is heartbroken. 
You may be a spouse who is heartbroken over a wayward uh, husband or wife. And you've been longing and looking and praying. And friends, that is the number one thing you can do is begin with prayer for your prodigal. I've put on our website, you'll find three resources you can go to. I don't have time to go through these today in our sermon, and don't try to copy this down. That link will be on our website. But there are three articles that you can find there that will give you some practical steps on what you can do if you are a parent of a prodigal child, if you are somebody who has somebody that you love in your life that is far from you. The top article that you see from September 2007 was written by Abraham Piper. He is the son of Dr. John Piper, who's a famous pastor, author, and speaker. What you don't know maybe is that Abraham Piper went on a five-year prodigal journey away from his faith and his father and others. And he writes a very clear article about his journey into destruction and how he turned around and he found God one night in a drunken stupor. And he offers steps that you can, can take as a parent for those who have prodigal children. The other two articles are well-written articles as well that deal with what to do when you have prodigals in your home. And I offer those as resources to you. You may not agree with every statement in them, and that's fine. But you will find some great resources and steps you can take if you have a family member who is far from God and you're struggling to love and don't know what to do. As we look at our passage today, we see how great God's love is for those who are lost, for those of us here who may be far from him. We're told that the father runs to meet the son. Now to us today, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but if you were the first century Jewish audience listening to Jesus tell this story, you would have sat up and said, what are you talking about? There is no self-respecting father who would ever run to meet a son, much less one like this rebellious son, a kid who shamed the family, who's, who's taken the resources the father gave him and went off and lived a life of sin. You know what the Levitical law said you did with a son like that is you stoned him to death. You didn't run to, to welcome this son home. Warren Wiersbe offers us a great picture. He says that if the neighbors had picked up rocks to stone this boy when he came home, they would have hit the father who was embracing the son. And friends, that is the picture of God. When people picked up stones to stone sinners, as the, the law said, the penalty of sin is death. It is Jesus who took not just the stones, not just the insults, but the nails in his hands and his feet. And the spear in his side as he went to the cross, as he paid the penalty of death for me and for you. As he took the penalty of sin, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loved us that much that he would run to meet us. That he would leave his throne in heaven to come to earth. To go to the cross where he opened his arms wide and said, I don't love you this much or this much, but I love you this much. And those arms are still open wide today as he says to those of us who are prodigals, come home. I am waiting with arms that are open wide to receive you if you will turn around and you will come home to me today. You may be sitting here saying, but Roger, my life is a mess. You, there is no way God wants me. No, friends, God wants you. Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrates his own love for us. That is you in this, while you were still a sinner, far from God, in rebellion, it says Christ died for you. Christ loves us that much. 
And he wants you to come home this morning. There was a book written called Shields of Brass. In it, Roy Engel tells the story of a widowed mother who lost her only son during World War I. Now, this woman was especially bitter because her neighbor had five sons who went to war and not a single one of them was lost. And this woman, one night, as she was tossing and turning, kind of half awake in her bitterness, she dreamed that an angel appeared to her. And this angel said, I'm going to give you your son back for five minutes. What five minutes do you want him back? Do you want him back as a little baby? Or do you want him as a schoolboy just beginning at school? Would you rather have him back when he finished high school, or do you want him the last time you saw him as a young soldier marching bravely off to war? The mother thought and said, I don't choose any of those times. Let me have him back as a little boy in the moment of anger that he doubled up his fist and shook them at me and said, I hate you. I hate you. Because in a little while, his anger subsided. And he came back to me, his dirty little face streaked with tears. And he put his arms around me and he said, Mommy, I'm sorry I was so naughty. I promise never to be bad again. I love you with all my heart. She said, let me have him back then. Because I never loved him more than at that moment when he changed his mind and he came back to me. Friends, that is how God views us. He loves us unconditionally, but he loves you even when you've been far from him and running away. When we turn around and we come home, we don't find a father who says, go over there and be a slave. Go over there and clean up something, and maybe I'll come and talk to you in a couple of years when I see that you're really, really changed. What he says is, I love you. He says, my son has come home in this passage. In verses 21 through 22, we see where this wayward son comes home. He's rehearsed his speech. He comes and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found and he began to be Mary. The son confesses his sins and the Bible tells us when we confess our sins, they are forgiven. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God clears the account. The blood of Jesus washes them away. He doesn't look and say, this is who you are. He says, that's who you were and now covered in the righteousness of my son. You are clean. You are forgiven. And he hits the reset button. If you are here today, friends, and you've been far from God, and you think your life is smelling, I mean, picture this son. He's come home. He's smelling of a pigsty, the dirt and dust. And he takes the best robe in the house, and he wraps it around his son. He doesn't say, go take a bath and get cleaned up, and then we'll talk. He says right there, he just lavishly covers the son with this expensive garment. He begins to kiss the son. He says, my son is home. 
As we read about the things that he gives here, uh, it says he's given this robe. The Greek word is stole. It designates a long robe that is reserved for a special guest or those who were greatly loved. It's what you find in Genesis chapter 37, verses 3 through 4, where Jacob gave his son Joseph the multicolored robe. Do you remember that? That special robe that set him apart. And all the brothers said, well, Joseph is loved more than us. This is what God gives. We're told that he puts a ring upon his finger. Friends, this isn't just a piece of bling. This isn't just some big ring to kind of show off. That was like handing the platinum credit card to your son. Because rings in that day were signet rings. It was the way you conducted business. You were allowed to go around and impress that seal in clay or wax. And it was the way that you signed. It was like giving power of attorney to your son. Now remember, here's a kid who has taken a third of your estate, wasted it all, and he comes home and you're immediately saying, here's, here's a blank check. You're entrusting him again with the resources and the ability to spend the things that are yours. We're told he's given sandals for his feet. This again shows his status as a son because slaves and the extremely poor were those who were barefoot in that day. If you had shoes on your feet, it showed that you were a freeman. And we're told that there is a Texas-sized barbecue that takes place. He kills the fatted calf. There's this enormous party that takes place. It's what we read in Luke 15, 10, where it says, the angels in heaven rejoice at one sinner who was lost and come home. There's a party in heaven when somebody comes home, and there should be a party here when somebody comes home. Now, as we see in verses 25 through 30, not everyone wants to join in this celebration. It says, now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants, and he began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, and he was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you, And I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a kid. This is a a goat. That I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your wealth with harlots, prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now remember who the second son represents here. The religious leaders. And when they say, God, we've served you. The Greek text here is very... Uh, intense. They literally say, we have slaved for you, God. We've slaved for you. We've been doing everything you wanted. And what have we gotten? And these sinners who've been out living it up, having a great time, you come along and suddenly you welcome them into the kingdom? We slave for you. Is there anybody here today that has ever felt that way? You've been going to church while others are sleeping in or sleeping around? You've been giving God your money while others have been wasting their money, getting wasted in the world or grabbing all the luxury items that are around? 
You, you've been serving faithfully, and, and maybe you've hardly ever heard a word of thanks. And suddenly some sinner comes to Christ, and what do we do in the church? Everybody celebrates and says, we need to hear their testimony. We need to let them share their story of redemption. Sometimes it's hard not to get angry and bitter, isn't it? Friends, if you're here today and you feel that way, can I remind you of two very important things? First of all, by not doing the things that many in the world have done, you've saved yourself a lot of wreckage, haven't you? You, you, you have not had to go through some of the consequences the people in the world have had for the decisions they've made. And second of all, even if others have failed to thank you, the Bible is very clear that God sees what you are doing and he will not miss it. It tells us in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work. God is keeping the account of your service, of your faithfulness. And there is a day when we walk through the gates of heaven that those who have lived for the Lord and served him faithfully will hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And those who have been faithful in the little things will be given faithfulness over larger and more abundant things in the eternal kingdom. God is not missing your service. You are not missing out on the stuff that is important. You might get 100 years here on earth and compare that with eternity. But as we look at the parable today, what this is talking about is getting into heaven. And that is based upon God's unmerited grace which not a single one of us deserves. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For you have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. You know, as those who look at the sinners out there who get to come into the kingdom, if we're feeling a little bit bad about how they got this unmerited grace, may I remind you that we got it too? We may not be as bad as some of the people you see out there, but friends, Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. It tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is a sinner, far from God, not deserving a place in the Father's house, but it is through his grace alone that we are saved. You know, most of us here would say, you know, we understand, Roger, that we're sinners. And we really are glad when those evil, wicked people come into the kingdom. I mean, we are. But do they really have to come here to our church? I mean, if we're honest, right? Because they, they don't always look like us. They don't know how to act. I mean, they come in here to our church and they're different. And, and do they really need to be here? This happened one day at an old established church that was across from a college campus. The members there dressed in suits and dresses. They were very distinguished in how they worshipped. And one day as the service was about to begin, the back doors opened, and this young man who came from the college campus wanders in. He had long, wild hair. He's wearing a T-shirt, cut-up jeans. He's got sandals on his feet. He's got a, a, a nose ring. He's pierced. He's, and as he walks in and he starts to come down the center aisle, the church is fairly full, but there's still room in the seats. And as he comes to each row, the people kind of scoot over to the middle to make it clear, you know, there's, there's no room in this row for you. And row after row that happens, and pretty soon he finds himself all the way up at the front row where it's full. 
And, and the preacher is walking up to begin his sermon. Now, the young man's looking around. He doesn't know what to do, so he just sits on the floor cross-legged right there in the middle of the aisle. Now, all the people in the pews begin to turn each other. What's, what's this kid doing? He needs to move. Where's the usher? Somebody. Well, at that moment, one of the deacons, an older, distinguished man, silver-haired, walking with a cane. He's got a pocket watch with a gold chain that comes across, and he begins to come down the center aisle. And he can't move that fast, so there's this clump, clump of the cane as he's coming down the aisle. And as he gets closer to this kid who can't see because he's facing forward, everybody begins to whisper, ooh, he's going to get it, you know. And, well, who can blame him? I mean, you know, he's a founding member of the church, and this kid's in here desecrating the sanctuary, and oh, everybody's kind of watching what's going to happen. You know, and as the man gets right up to the boy, he raises his cane, and everybody's expecting him to jab the kid with the cane. But as he raises his cane, he drops it to the floor. And with great difficulty, this older gentleman gets himself down to the floor and he sits cross-legged next to the young man in the center aisle so that he won't have to worship alone. And the pastor by now has gotten here to the pulpit and he's seen every eye watching this so he didn't even begin his message. And he says, what you have just Seen, you will never forget, and what I'm about to say, you will never remember. <laughs> Friends, that is the picture that God has for us. He wants us to be those who have received God's grace and not to forget what it is like, to not forget what we used to be like. Even if we look good on the outside, God said inside, you were not good. You were far from me. And as those who have come home, those who have received my grace, I want you to show it to others who are far from home. Now, the problem with the religious leaders is they didn't realize they were prodigal sons as well, did they? You see, they said, we've always been home. We've always been obedient. We've never failed to keep a command of yours. Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, they're angry with God right now. And yet what they're saying to God is, why are you letting these sinners come into the kingdom. In verse 29, one of them complains, I've never even gotten a goat to celebrate with my friends. Look at verse 31. God says, son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you remember how it said the inheritance was divided? God said, here is your portion. It's not the father's fault, it's the son's fault this good son who never took the things that God had for him. Instead of receiving God's grace, he says, I'm slaving away. He's missed the privileges of being a son. Friends, is there anyone here like that today? Have you been slaving away for God? Following the rules, the rituals, being religious? of forgetting the personal relationship that God has for you. Where he says to you, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I've accepted you like you are. Now, I love you too much to leave you like you are. Yes, we should live a good life. But no, friends, it's not to earn God's acceptance. It's as a response of love to his grace and love he's shown to us. That's why we live for the Lord. It's why we do those things for God. 
As we look at this story here, it's interesting. We're never told if the religious leaders respond to God's invitation and grace and come in, do we? God leaves the story open-ended with the father in the field saying to the son, come in. Come into the kingdom. Now we know from other texts that there were many of the religious leaders who did come to faith in Christ, but there were also many who rejected him. As we look at this story here, the question is not what happened to those religious leaders. The question here is what has happened with you? As you look at your life, do you realize that you are a prodigal son? You are a prodigal daughter? The question is, what kind are we? Are we like the one son who ran out and lived a hell-bent life that we're able, uh, easily able to say, well, that person's far from God and is lost? Or are we those that are in here looking really good, but maybe are still far from God ourselves? The Bible tells us, Jesus warns us of this in Matthew chapter 7. He says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, these religious leaders looked like they were close to the Father, but they were prodigals as well. They were far from home because they said, we are trusting in ourselves, in our rules, our rituals, and we have no relationship with you, Jesus, the Son of God. And friends, if you have lived your life trying to be good enough to get to God, but have never come to God's Son, then you are far from home. It doesn't matter how good your life has looked. It has to be based upon a personal relationship with God's Son. Through faith alone we're saved, not through our works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. When the other son repented and confessed his sin, this father said in verse 32, we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found as we end today, friends, have you come home? Or are you still far from God? Are you a prodigal son who is a little bit like the religious leaders? Who comes to church, who does good things, but is still far from home? Corey Ten Boom's father once said, just because a mouse is in a cookie jar, it doesn't make it a cookie. And friends, just because you're in church, it doesn't make you a Christian. You have to come to faith in Jesus Christ, accepting him as your personal Savior, turning from your sins into him, saying, I believe you died on the cross as the payment for the penalty of my sins. Yes, God, I am a sinner, and I know I can't be good enough to get to you, but I thank you, Jesus, that you took my place, that you died for me, you paid that penalty of death, and I accept you today to be my Savior. If you've never done that, I invite you to come home today to say to God, I am a sinner. We're coming to the communion table now. And at the communion table, we are reminded of what God did for us. In John 1, 12, we're told, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Friends, whether we're like the first son who has been far from God, 
living a life in open rebellion, or whether we're like the second son, one who has lived a pretty good-looking life, but internally we're still far from God because we've never come to faith in him. This table today reminds us of God's great grace to us, of his willingness to run to meet us, those sons and daughters who were far from him, because he left his throne in heaven and he came to earth to ultimately go to the cross where he paid the penalty of death for our sins. In a moment, you're going to have a piece of bread that you can take representing his body, the sacrifice that was given in our place, the cup of juice representing his blood that was shed to wash away our sins. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I invite you today, as the elements are passed, to take those things, to say to God, today, God, I'm coming home. I'm accepting you, Jesus, as my Savior. I'm turning from my sins into you and to take those elements. And for the rest of us who have received him in the past, maybe we've been running far from home as well. And today is a day where we need to stop and just confess our sins and say, God, I've been far from you. I've been walking away from you. And today, God, I want to repent. I want to stop. I want to turn around. I want to come home. You've never lost your place as a son or a daughter in the kingdom. Once we come to faith, our, our salvation is secure for all eternity. But we can break our fellowship. We can lose rewards. We can quench God's work in our life. And so today, use this as a time of confession. Whether you're coming to Christ for the first time or as a son or daughter who's been walking away from him, as a time where you're turning around and you're coming home. Men, will you serve us, please?
In the Bible, we're told that we were far from God and that we were without hope. It says, without God in the world, we were without hope. The road we were on had a bridge that was out, and there was a chasm of sin that separated us from God, and there was no way home until Jesus Christ came. And as he tells us in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus provided that bridge home. He provided the cross that was laid across that chasm of sin, giving us the way back to the Father, the way to be welcomed home as sons and daughters who have been far from God. The bread that we hold represents the body of Christ that was nailed to the cross to be that sacrifice to save us, eat it in remembrance of him. We're told in the Bible that sacrifices used to be offered. Animals that were taken to the temple that shed their blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins. But the scriptures are also very clear that those sacrifices were temporary. That they could not remove the penalty. It wasn't until the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world came as John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, He is here, the Messiah. The one who will remove our sins once and for all came that we were saved. What we hold in our hand represents His blood that washed away our sins, drinking in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great love. Love that was demonstrated while we were yet sinners. You, Jesus, died for us to provide the way home. I pray, Father, for those of us who are here today that are prodigals, that were far from you in different ways, some more like the first son, very clearly lost and far from you. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to come and seek for us and find us and bring us home, as those other parables demonstrate. And we thank you, Lord, that for those of us who maybe were closer to home but still just as far, because in our hearts, we were prodigals. Far from you, because we couldn't humble ourselves and say we need you, and to recognize that it was you, Jesus, alone that provides the way home. I thank you, Father, that you've, you've drawn us to, to know your son. You've called us home. And I pray now, Lord, as those who are here that know your son, as we walk out of these doors, would we be those who go into the world and show others who are lost the way home through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here and you have need of prayer, there are prayer leaders here at the front. We'd love to talk to you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.